This is Dere Olalia, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast, episode 136. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey, this is Mark Asquith, the host of the 7-Minute Mentor podcast, global entrepreneur and all-round geek. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. I am MC Lobsher, the Cashflow Ninja, and you're listening to Before the Millions podcast. You're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. But whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent, you've come to the right place mr hollywood himself presents the before the millions podcast and now your host deray olalaye what is going on btm tribe welcome to another installment of the before the millions podcast i'm super excited to have you here if this is your first time tuning in welcome 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 i'm glad to have you i am excited that you have just now joined the best tribe in the world so as you progress down your real estate investing journey and building your lifestyle business i just want this podcast to be a resource for you to be a source of inspiration and motivation or maybe even a source of connection a source of connection with any of the guests on the show Right, A lot of these people have the most giving of hearts and um, they would answer any question that you have as you kind of progress through your journey. So again, welcome to the tribe. These are just the ancillary benefits of being a part of this amazing tribe. But ultimately, the goal here is to help you build your lifestyle design business, a business that doesn't rule you or dictate you and where you have to be or what you have to do and how long you have to be there, but a business that is dictated by your lifestyle. Right. So you put yourself first. And that's what we're all about here on today's episode. We're talking to Mr. Jason Hartman. Jason is going to help us understand the real estate market, the real estate terrain as a whole. Right. Many individuals have questions about when and where to start investing. And for good reason, it's one of the biggest decisions that you have to make as an investor. Where do I invest? What type of investments do I invest in? And it can be hard and daunting for a lot of people, but individuals like Jason, they like to make it simple. And Jason's simplicity comes in the form of just buying regular, everyday, single-family homes. Nothing more, nothing less. And you can build massive amounts of wealth. So again, on today's episode, we're actually going to talk about the markets that you should start buying these single-family homes in. And why it's important to understand the makeup of that market. We're going to divide these markets into three different categories. And we're going to show you exactly which category is best for the type of investing that you want to do. Now, one thing that's important to know is the fact that many people, especially in the media, they look at the real estate market as this one single behemoth thing. And it goes in the same direction across the board, right? And... That's actually not true. You and I know this, that there are tons, hundreds of markets out there, thousands of sub-markets out there, 
And just because one market is doing bad doesn't mean another market is not excelling. So on this episode, we're not just going to give you a pie in the sky. Hey, this is how the overall market is doing. We're going to tell you exactly which markets are performing, why they're performing, and which markets are not performing, and why you should stay away from those markets. Jason likes to say that investing in some markets, which we will get to here in the episode, he likes to say that investing in some particular markets is considered gambling, and many so-called investors are currently gambling with their money. So it's a fascinating episode, guys. I cannot wait to get into it. I'm so happy that we're back for another week, man. I'm inspired. I'm motivated. At the end of the year, like I'm just fired up. I've been in Dallas for the past week and primarily because I had a mastermind meetup. So I've been running a high-level mastermind that started at the beginning of this year to help real estate entrepreneurs build their business and escape the rat race. I was able to do it in less than two years, and my goal is to help every single person in my mastermind do it in less than two years. And um, I'd say so far they're on a pretty good track. But anyways, we had our uh, we had our meetup this past weekend. We met up at a uh, Dallas restaurant called Moxie's. Um, there's also a Houston location. I like the Dallas location a little bit better though. But we met up at Moxie's. Man, it was a powerful, powerful conversation. Um, but what was really cool about that conversation was the fact that we We got to goal set. We got to really dream big for 2020. And we got to start setting the pace for the actions that are going to now follow in the next few weeks to make sure that 2020 is our best year yet. And I'm confident that every single current member of my mastermind will be able to escape the rat race next year and live a life ultimately by their own design. I'm super excited. Um, At the end of that conversation, though, what was really interesting and what really, really like put a put a cherry on top of uh, the motivational session that we kind of had and, and, the, and the planning session that we had was was when Antonio, one of my mastermind members, asked me how long I would be in Dallas. And my response to him was that I'm playing it by ear. I don't really have a set timeline because although our meetup was on Tuesday, I got to Dallas the Saturday before to meet with a few of the listeners and some members in my workshop. So I didn't really have a plan set anything. And I still don't. And when I mentioned that to them, it kind of clicked for them, but more so for me, that how much I get to actually dictate my time and where I am. Like it wasn't something that I thought too much about until they pointed it out. And that, and that was like the key thing that they wanted because there's nothing that says I can't be in Dallas for the rest of the month. There's not a single thing. My ultimate lifestyle design is, is one where I can go on like a six month Tim Ferriss type sabbatical, right? Now, although I'm not there yet, I still am living my lifestyle design every single day. And it's something that um, I always tell my mastermind members and even my workshop clients that we have to live as the person that we're looking to be, right? So if you're looking to be a six-figure earner, you have to start living as that person. That doesn't mean go out and spend a bunch of money, but that means make the decisions that that person would make. Right. Especially as as far as your work ethic and what you're actually actually working on in your business. So if my goal is ultimately lifestyle design and I want my business to facilitate that, I need to go ahead and incorporate certain things that trigger that every single day. So another example is like test driving that car that you really want. Right. Like if you really want like a Maserati or a Corvette or whatever car you want. Right. Why don't you go test drive that car? Why don't you go rent out that car for a day and just see what it feels to be in that car? One, you might figure out you don't even want that or, or, Hey, well, I'm better off just renting it one weekend out of the year when I really want to drive it. Or two, 
you get to a place to where you can really understand and imagine what it would feel like to have that vehicle. And now you actually have a bullseye to aim for when you're actually trying to put in work and achieve your goals and not fall asleep at 2 a.m. at your desk. Right. It's different when it's just like, hey, I want a million dollars when it's or I want the new turbocharged blah, 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 blah. That's coming out next year and I'm going to do everything to get it. So I'll say all that to say that it was a really good session and I'm having a lot of fun. Next up in the tip of the week, I'm going to give you a quick hack for selecting your market. So stay tuned. The raise tip of the week. So. You are brand new to real estate and you're trying to figure out what market to start investing in. And of course, we're going to have a full length episode coming up here for you shortly to really, really, really learn the metrics behind how and why we choose certain markets. But ultimately, once you've chosen your market and you're still needing to to hone in and choose a sub market or maybe even choose a neighborhood, how is that done? We're going to briefly run over that here during this tip of the week. But if you want to step by step to that, I actually have a challenge over at beforethemillions.com forward slash 5k that kind of walks you through how I choose sub markets and neighborhoods. But again, for this tip of the week, the cat is out of the bag. A great way to choose sub markets and neighborhoods, not only for investors, but actually specifically even better for wholesalers and fixers and flippers. It's to one, get a list of cash purchases. So acquire that list, whether you're pulling that from some type of list source, uh, whether you're asking for a realtor for cash purchases in the area, you're acquiring a list of cash purchases, number one. Number two, you're going to map those cash purchases. You can map them in Google Maps. So basically take all the addresses, find an app to input all of the addresses and have them pop up on the map as pins so that you see where the clusters are. So where you see the clusters of cash purchases in certain neighborhoods, so let's just say you see a neighborhood, you see three, four, maybe even five cash purchases in that neighborhood, you want to do a deep dive into that neighborhood. So again, number one, acquire your list of cash purchases. Number two, map the cash purchases. Number three, search for cash purchasers. So once you have the address, you can search for these people on the county website. Because you have the address of the cash purchaser, you can search for the person's name or maybe the company's name on the county website. This gives you not only the company's name, but this also gives you their mailing address. Now, I'm not going to get into what to say in the mailers and how to mail them and how to reach them. Um, that's all covered over at beforethemillions.com forward slash 5K for free, guys. It's it's free teachings on how you can put 5K in your pocket. Beforethemillions.com forward slash 5K. But what's important here for this tip of the week is the fact that you're able to find these cash purchases and you're able to find these clusters of cash purchases. And these clusters tell you that this is where a lot of investors are investing. Okay, so think of your mindset as a wholesaler. If you brought me a deal because you saw that I purchased three properties in this area in the past three months or six months or 12 months, and they're all ranch style, three bedroom, two bathroom homes, and you brought me a ranch style, three bedroom, two bathroom home in the price range that I buy those properties at, I would be your ideal investor. I would be the person that would close with you every single time because you already know what I like. You know what I want and you bring that to me. So as a starting wholesaler, this is a great technique, not only to build up your cash buyers list, but also to select your market, to select your sub market and start driving for dollars in certain neighborhoods or start setting your alerts on, on Zillow and Redfin for certain zip codes, right? This reverse lookup 
gives you all the ammo you need to approach an investor the right way, an investor that you know is interested in what you have to offer. Same for fixers and flippers. Nothing changes. Because as an investor, again, if I'm investing in a certain market and I'm being profitable in this market, nine times out of 10, that's the market that you want to invest in. So I've just showed you how to reverse search for cash purchasers so that you could make sure that you're selecting a formidable submarket and or neighborhood for your next deal. Let's get to the show. And now your feature presentation. Mr. Jason Hartman, how's it going today? Hey, Dre, good to talk to you. I'm super excited to get into your story. We talked a little bit before the call. As an investor, as a real estate entrepreneur, and also as a host of multiple shows, just kind of let's let's peel back the onion a little bit. Let's take it back into the time machine and work our way up and kind of figure out how you got to where you are today. So I was 16 years old. I grew up poor. I lived in Los Angeles, California. I didn't like being poor very much. And I heard an infomercial and the guru on that infomercial was talking about, you know, buying properties with nothing down, sort of the typical infomercial thing we always hear. But I got fascinated. So I I went out and got his book. I read three chapters and then I put it down. Hey, I was only 16. Okay. At least I got through three chapters. (laughs) But uh, the interesting thing is my mom picked up that book and uh, she read the whole thing and uh, started going to real estate seminars, reading more books, and got fascinated with the topic. So fast forward two years, I'm now 18 years old. I'm just about to graduate from high school. And my mom says to me, "Uh, you know, Jason, you got me interested in this real estate investing. And there's a big seminar this weekend in Anaheim by Disneyland. Why don't you go? So DeRay, I rounded up nine of my buddies from high school. And uh, because at that age, I couldn't do anything by myself, right? (laughs) So uh, there's power in numbers. Rounded all these uh, friends up. I got them all there on Friday night. And the first speaker was talking about points. And I didn't know what points were. And, you know, he was talking about loan points. When you get a loan, you know, 1% of the loan amount is a point. And so it occurred to me that I got to learn the basics. I'm here at the sort of advanced thing. And so I thought the first thing I'm going to do on Monday is I'm going to figure out how to get my real estate license just so I can learn the business. Because I, I discovered about a year earlier, I discovered four great mentors uh, who I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with and you probably followed their work too. And that's Jim Rohn, Dennis Waitley, Zig Ziglar, and Earl Nightingale. And I remember on one of the audio tapes, Earl Nightingale said uh, to me, you know, he was talking about like how we got to take a step back and learn the basics before we pursue these big ideas, right? Just do the basics, right? You know, uh, uh, pay your dues, if you will. And he used real estate as an example. And he said, want to get rich in real estate? Learn the business first, right? And so I thought, you know, that's good. So I'm going to get my real estate license. Anyway, back to that weekend conference. Uh, By Saturday morning, only one of my friends was left out of the nine. Everybody else went to the beach. <laughs> and, and, and so he stayed through Saturday. But by Sunday afternoon, when the conference was over, I was the only one there. I went, you know, it was just by myself. And so I was the most dedicated. All my friends were having more fun than me, though. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I got my real estate license my first year of college. And I was going to Long Beach City College. And, uh, you know, I was right before my, uh, well, let me see, I was 19 when I got my license, right before my 20th birthday when I got it. And I started selling real estate for Century 21 in Anaheim, California, just so I could learn how it's done. 
it turns out my first month in the business, I sold five properties because I was actually working. And what I would do is I would put little ads in the penny saver and the Orange County Register, little classified ads, a little this big, you know, little tiny ads. And I would advertise government repo homes, HUD and VA repos, foreclosure properties. And I'd get a whole bunch of calls to my phone machine. And I would return those calls and set up appointments with them. And I'd drive these people around to the properties in my Volkswagen Jetta. And uh, I'd you know, I'd write bids for them and I'd submit the bids and I won five of them. So I sold five properties my first month in the business. So I thought that was a pretty good start because, you know, most real estate agents, you know, they might sell five in a year if they're lucky. (laughs) So, so that was good. And it turns out as I went on in my career, about six months into it, I was about 20 and a half. um, One of my clients, an investor that I'd sold a couple properties to, his name was Jim Wool. Uh, I sold him a couple properties and one of them that he bought from me was a little one bedroom condo in Huntington Beach, California. And he didn't like that very much, that property. And and so he said to me, Hey Jason, you know, I'd like you to list this one for me and, and sell it. And, um, and you know, I'll buy another property from you after, after you sell this one. And, uh, I said, Jim, I don't want to sell it for you. I want to buy it from you. And that was my first investment property at age 20 years old. And uh, that. so that's kind of how it all started. I love that. I love that. And you, you talk about the fact that you went to be an agent because you wanted to learn how, quote unquote, it's done. Yeah. You know, I, briefly before the episode started, I, I told you that one of my main premises is to help people filter through what's best for them. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. the way I do that is I help them start with their goal, their overall goal. And your goal, what you said verbatim is, how do I get rich with real estate? Right. Right. I help them figure out their overall goal. And, you know, I've told you for this podcast, a lot of our goals is lifestyle design, being able to control our time, getting out of a system, right? Sure. And, and when you're looking at that overall goal, it's behoove of you to make sure that you're following a path or a system mm-hmm. that complements your goal. I remember back when I was in corporate America and I told you about my big four experience, but immediately after my big four experience, I went to go work for a private equity firm. And when you say big four, you mean big four accounting firm? Big four accounting. Yes. Thank you for clarifying. Right. I went to go work for a private equity fund. Mm -hmm. And the reason I went to go do this, again, I wanted to learn how it was done. I think think Robert Kiyosaki said it one time where if you're going to... If you're going to go go get educated on something, find mm-hmm. a way to get paid for that education, right? So instead of going to get my master's, instead of going to get my MBA, I decided that I wanted to go get paid to learn how it was done. And that's yeah. similar to what you've done, right? That's, so that's a better off, plan for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I went out from big four and I was like, okay, well, I know that I know how to look at things in arrears. I know the accounting side of things. How do I how do I start projections? How do I start forecasting? How do I know how to how to make a financial model? Right. And it's because I decided that I wanted to be an investor and I knew exactly where I wanted to go in the investing world. I wanted to be a, a big time syndicator. So I wanted to learn how to forecast. And because of that, I reverse engineered the right. same way you reverse engineered. So you wanted to get rich with real estate. But at the same time, you've gotten started down the real estate path through becoming a real estate agent. What's the overall plan for you at this time? And I know, again, in a bubble, it's like, I want to get rich through real estate. But what yeah. does that really mean? Yeah. So I was an investor ever since age 20. So I I did a lot of investments, uh, but I did make a pretty significant transition in 2005. Uh, Well, you could argue 2004 or 2005, depends how you look at it. 
Um, and so basically my career was, I was a, a real estate agent uh, for many years. I was uh, number 59 in the country or in the world, sorry, in the world for Remax at age 24. So I did really well. You know, you can make a lot of money just selling real estate. You don't have to own any. Okay. <laughs> you know, you, brokering it is a pretty good business if you do it right. And, um, but I'd always invested along the way. Um, and uh, then uh, in, uh, uh, after, after working at Remax for several years, I bought a real estate company and it was a failing real estate company. I turned it around. I sold it to Coldwell Banker. And as the negotiations for that deal were starting in 2004, it took about a year, you know, selling your company to a big publicly traded company is, is not a fast process. Um, and, uh, so I, I knew I'd have to do something else. I, I knew I'd have a non-compete agreement that would apply to local traditional real estate. And, um, you know, I, I, I started looking at thinking about what to do with my life. Like I thought, should I just retire? I got enough money. I could retire. I had, you know, several properties and, you know, I'd made a lot of money over the past many years. And, and, I didn't like the idea of retirement. I think people that retire die young, you know, or, or at least die soon after retirement because you got to have a purpose in life. You know, um, I think working is really quite good for us actually, uh, even if we don't need to work. Uh, and, and so I, I started shopping around as to how to invest. I thought maybe I'll just be a full-time investor. And I started researching other markets all across the country because I'd already gone through a couple economic cycles in Southern California. And uh, I thought, you know, I'm older now. I'm more conservative. I don't want to have all my eggs in one basket. And, um, you know, I started researching all these markets around the country, you know, uh, and even internationally. Uh, by then, I had traveled quite a bit around the world. And I thought, you know, I, I'm going to look at properties in Texas and Georgia and, and Arizona and, and uh, in all these different states. And I started reading all these books like the Places Rated Almanac, you know, that almanac's like this thick, it's like the yellow pages, and learning about all these different markets and realizing, you know, there, there are much better places to invest in real estate than Southern California. And I soon realized there are really three types of real estate markets. Here, here's the thing. I thought I was an investor and many people think they're investors, but they're really gamblers. They're really speculators. Here's what I mean by that. One of my teachings is called the 10 commandments of successful investing. And in my 10 commandments, I talk about commandment number five, which is thou shalt not gamble. And what I mean by that is, you know, most people, they buy a property and they think they're investing because they're waiting for something great to happen, namely appreciation. And if that doesn't happen, they're out of luck. Investing is the long-term process of creating value over time. Investing is about investing for yield. It's about investing for cash flow. Cash flow is pretty reliable. Appreciation is very speculative, okay? And so um, what you want to do is you want to invest for income, for yield, for cash flow. That's investing. Anything else is speculating or gambling. And I'm not saying that you can't make money speculating and gambling. You can, okay? It's just not a very conservative approach, and it's not something you should hang your hat on. 
you know, uh, you should do that with maybe 10 or 20% of your net worth, but you should invest with the rest of it. Do something prudent. And so investing in these good three types of markets, okay, there's a linear market, a hybrid market, and a cyclical market. Southern California, or really most of the West Coast of the United States, that's cyclical. In other words, it has, it's like a, if you look at it, it looks like a roller coaster on a chart, right? It has glorious ups where properties appreciate, they get really high, a lot of people make a ton of money, and it has really ugly lows. And it has this roller coaster type cycle up and down, okay, where there's lots of appreciation, right? These linear markets, which are most of the world, by the way, most of the world is a linear real estate market, and most of the country is also. They kind of do this. They have little ups and little downs, not very pronounced, but the long-term trend is just kind of up, okay? That's a linear market. A hybrid market is, as the name would imply, it's in between the two. You know, little more pronounced ups, little more pronounced downs, but not crazy like the cyclical market. And if you're looking at the video we're recording and not just listening to the audio, you can see my hand movements, okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that explain it. So most of, uh, so first, let's look at what are the cyclical markets in the U.S. and around the world, okay? In the U.S., cyclical markets are the trophy markets. They're the ones we always hear about on the news array. They're places like Los Angeles, San Francisco, San Diego, Seattle, okay, those markets. On the East Coast, they're Boston, New York, Washington, okay. Uh, in my state, Florida, they're Miami, they're South Florida, okay. These are all the kind of trophy markets that get all the news, that get all the attention, okay. Around the world, these are places like Paris, London, Dubai, Hong Kong, Tokyo. Those are cyclical markets, okay? These are highly speculative. They're where the gamblers, quote unquote, invest. They're not really investing. They're speculating. They're gambling, right? But a lot of times they're right, okay? Because, you know, maybe three out of every 10 years, everything goes in their favor, okay? But the rest of the time, they have terrible cash flow. They have high foreclosure rates because a lot of people were buying properties on the come. They were buying properties expecting appreciation, and then that didn't happen. And, uh, you know, the, one of the things we say with commandment number five, thou shalt not gamble, is the property must make sense the day you buy it, or you don't buy it. And how do you know if it makes sense? It has cash flow. It has a good rent to value ratio. And we try to get somewhere in the neighborhood of that 1% rule, meaning that if the property is $100,000, it should generate about $1,000 a month in income. If it's a million dollars, you want it to generate $10,000 a month in income, okay? About 1% of the value per month, okay? In, in, in the cyclical markets that I outlined, the typical rent-to-value ratio is 0.5. It's, it's half of 1% where if you had a million dollar property and you could get $5,000 a month for it in Los Angeles or in New York or wherever, any of those cyclical markets, you'd probably be, think you're doing great, okay? But that doesn't really work. That's not a sustainable investment, okay? So sure. sustainable investing, very I love important. That. And, I, and I think you brought us into the meat and potatoes of today's podcast episode, 
which is selecting your real estate market. I think that, you know, I look at a lot of investors who, who are in some of these cyclical markets and I want to talk to maybe the first time investor who is in a cyclical market and give them some advice. Should they go ahead and figure out how to invest in their market and make sure that they're buying right, like you said? Or should they go ahead and look outside of their market if they want to be true investors and make sure that they're cash flowing? What, what is your opinion if somebody's just now starting out and they live in a cyclical market? Yeah, so that's that's a good question. First of all, I want them to increase their worldview. And remember that the United States consists of about 400 local markets, 400 markets. That's a lot. Okay, it's a big country. There's a lot of places to invest. And technology has allowed us to invest remotely. There's so many technology tools nowadays that can really help with remote investing. Um, But um, here's the thing. Um, A funny thing happened last Thanksgiving. I was in Sacramento with my aunt, Aunt Joan, uh, who's been on my podcast several times. And she's quite a big real estate investor. She has Uh, I think she's got over 100 properties now, and um, uh, she's been investing for decades. You know, she's quite rich. Anyway, uh, my girlfriend and I got out of the car with Aunt Joan, and we were going to go to the movies. And, you know, it's her car, right? Because neither of us live in Sacramento, so we were in, in her Lexus. So we get out of the car, and I say to Aunt Joan, I say, did you lock the car? You know, Aunt Joan is older, so you got to kind of say, I'm helping her. I'm trying to think for her a little bit. Did you lock the car? And she had her cane and she looked at Carmen and I, my girlfriend, and gave us the funniest look and stammered her cane on the ground. And she said, it's locked enough. <laughs> now, now, how can the car be locked enough? It's either locked or it's not locked, right? And here's the thing about what you asked, right? You know, if, if they want to invest in a cyclical market, how can they buy right? Well, I say you can't buy right enough, okay? You can't buy right enough to make it work. It's nearly impossible. You would have to buy that property so cheap so much below market to make that rent-to-value ratio work. And then if you did buy it, remember something. Every day you own a property that you don't sell it, you're buying it from yourself because you're, you're saying you're going to keep it, right? Because there's always an opportunity cost attached to equity. So if you own that property, say you got a killer deal on a property and you don't sell it, okay, you're buying it from yourself. You're not freeing up all the equity in that property to be able to use it for something. So uh, that's that's part of the problem too, right? So I, I just like investing in these good, solid, linear markets, maybe a couple hybrid markets. Uh, by the way, I should explain what are... Hi- so I explained what cyclical markets are. Those are all the trophy markets we all hear about, we all know about, right? Um, linear markets are the opposite. Most of the world is a linear market. Okay, so we like places like Atlanta, um, you know, a lot of markets in Texas, um, Little Rock, Arkansas, Memphis, Tennessee. Um, We like the Carolinas, North Carolina, South Carolina has some good markets. Okay, these kind of markets, uh, Florida has some, uh, but all of these are getting more expensive and they're becoming more hybrid, which is in between the two. Right now, the strict hybrid markets would be Denver, Austin. Those would be great. Uh, examples of hybrid markets, right? That have those more pronounced, but not crazy ups and downs. Okay. I love that. I love that. Now, I want to, I want to speak to two things. First and the first thing is we're strictly talking about investing right now. Do you believe that 
the wholesalers, the fixers and flippers, the agents, the property managers, do you believe that there, there is opportunity for them in every market? Because again, when you buy right, when you get something in the contract at the right price, as long as you do that, you know how to fundamentally do that. And we'll talk about that next. Yeah. You can do that in any market. What, what is your opinion? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can do that. A wholesaler and a flipper can make money in any market, okay? Because they're just in and out, okay? But you got you to gotta know what you're doing, okay? Yeah. You got, and, you, and really, it's more than knowing what you're doing. You know, the market, the real estate investing industry has become so mature and there are so many really good players in it now that you really got to know what you're doing to buy right, to source the properties, to have deal flow, um, to have the relationships with the contractors, to know what to improve, what not to improve, where you're going to get the best value, to not get ripped off by contractors, et cetera, et cetera. So you, yes, you can make money anywhere. Certainly you can wholesale and make money anywhere. It doesn't matter, right? Um, in fact, uh, it would even be a, a reasonable argument to say you could make more money in the higher price cyclical markets because uh, there's just more, uh, there's more meat on the bone, right? You know, it's just a bigger property, so you can do more with it. But you got to be careful. There's a high risk to flipping, okay? Um, okay. And, and you really got to be a pro. Yeah, I just want to go off on that tangent really quick before we kind of get back to investing. Now, when it comes to investing um, and we're picking our market, what what are the top KPIs that you look at when you're selecting a market that's going to be formidable, a formidable market for you to invest in? What, do you, what are some of the things that you're looking at, such as job growth and employment history? What are, you, what are you looking at? Yeah, well, we like growth markets. We like right to work states. Okay. And what that means is um, some states require workers to join a union if they want to have a job. We don't like that, okay? Unions are a thing of the past, largely, in American history. They were needed at one time. Uh, I don't think they're very needed now. And um, you shouldn't have to join a union in order to get a job, okay? That's, that means right to work means you have the right to work without joining the union. And employers like that. So th these states tend to be more business friendly um, and they're in the southern United States, you know, they're, they're uh, states uh, all in the southeast. These are, these are the great places to invest. Plus, this, this is where the sunshine is, okay? And a lot of these retiring baby boomers that live up in colder northern climates in the northern Midwest or the northeast, you know, they're just sick of that cold. When they retire, they want to they wanna live in a place that's got a low cost of living, it's business friendly, um, it's got natural beauty and warm weather. You know, older people like warm weather. <laughs> it's definitely, yeah. definitely the case. So, so Jason, give me, give me some numbers, like as far as the exact KPIs you're looking at. When you say low cost of living, what, is, what does that mean to the average individual? So if I'm an investor, I'm listening to Jason DeRay right now, I'm starting to research markets. What does a low cost of living mean? What are some other factors that I'm looking at? And give me maybe, um, so for instance, uh, if you're looking at the number of employers in a certain submarket, right? And if one employer makes up 80% of the workforce, maybe that's not a market you want to invest right. in. What are you, I, what are you, what, what are you yeah. looking at? Yeah. You want a diversified employment base, not only diversified by employer, but by industry too. Okay. So you look at Memphis, for example, Memphis is the logistics capital of the United States. Okay. And logistics is not going out of business. 
and manufacturing companies do not move very easily. Okay, FedEx is not going to move anytime soon from Memphis. Okay, um, but it is one big employer. I agree, it's not super diversified. But you've got other logistics operations in Memphis as well, and there's a lot spinning off from that. Um, uh, you know, Memphis is this kind of market where, uh, you know, one of our property managers said it pretty well. He said, "I love Memphis." Because everybody makes forty thousand dollars a year and they rent, you know, <laughs> they they don't own, and so it's a big renter market. Indianapolis is another great market, by the way. I didn't mention Indianapolis either. In Indianapolis is actually our longest running market. We've been in Indianapolis for, I mean, I've been doing business there for I don't know twelve. 13 years, 14 years now. Um, that's just been a great linear market for us. I've, we've made a lot of money in Indianapolis. Um, so uh, a diversified employer base is good, low cost of living, business friendly, right to work. Um, I, like, I like states with no state income tax, like Florida, because those are the business friendly states and that's where the employers are setting up shop. Um, I don't have to tell anybody about how many people and employers keep leaving California. You know, California is my home state. I live there the vast majority of my life. And uh, I call it the Socialist Republic of California. It's truly a mess. Um, yeah. and, and New York is is pretty similar. And and so is Taxachusetts, Massachusetts, where I think you're from. Um, you know, um, <laughs> uh, Taxachusetts, I mean, people are moving to Florida. You know, yeah. they're just, it's just this constant out-migration. And with the Trump or, or the Republican tax plan uh, and the attack on the SALT taxes, S SALT is an acronym, state and local taxes, limiting those to $10,000 a year, the deduction for them. Oh my gosh, that hit hit people hard. And it's one more reason to move to these low cost of living, no income tax, no state income tax states. When you're looking at rent growth, what are some of the metrics that you're looking at? Yeah, ideally, it would be great if we could all raise our rents by about 4% annually. But here's the thing. I teach some things I, something I call the three dimensions of real estate. And there's really more than three dimensions. That just sounds good. Okay. <laughs> three dimensional. And, um, uh, you know, rent growth doesn't happen as much as it could when interest rates are low. When interest rates are low and housing affordability is high, it's very hard to raise your rents because remember people only have a few choices. They can buy, they can rent, or they can be homeless. Now, I, I say that a lot at our conferences and when I'm speaking in front of an audience and someone said wisely, well, they can live with their parents. Yeah, I agree. That's a fourth choice. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but, but look, when, when interest rates are low, it's not a landlord's market. It's a good time to buy, but landlords that own a lot of properties really prefer high interest rates because that means mm. people don't move out of the renter pool and into the homeowner pool. They stay renting. Uh, so, uh, you know, you, you always have to consider that, uh, that issue. Um, but, uh, yeah. I'm sure you've read Dave Lindahl's Emerging Markets. Everything that we're saying right now is in a vacuum, right? It's, it's, it's like, hey, let me jot down all these things as quickly as possible. What's your favorite book or resource to help people when it comes to uh, just kind of doing their research on the markets that they're looking at? Well, I think a lot of that, really, you got to do it online. Okay, because books are, you know, they'll teach you principles, uh, but they won't give you uh, the latest data. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, 
Meredith Whitney uh, did a great book, and I had her on my podcast a few years back, entitled State of the States. That's really good. And it's all about this migration toward the Southeast and the Midwest out of the high cost of living states. And that was long before the new tax uh, plan. Um, uh, All of the places rated book, I think uh, books, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the best places to retire, the best places for young people. And I have not read a lot of these books lately. Okay. Um, there, that, that's the research I did years ago. Um, but there are always these, uh, you know, ratings on the best towns to retire in, uh, the best college towns, the best everything. Right. But, you know, after all of that, I, I don't think there's a lot more to know except what I've said. Now, I, I do want to make one disclaimer about that though. Market is not everything. I would rather have a B market and an A team than I would a B team and an A market because the team you have on the ground is going to mean more to you than the market will, okay? So for example, if Atlanta is a better market than um, Indianapolis, but I've got a better team in Indianapolis, I would buy there first, okay? Uh, or if, you know, Jacksonville, Florida, that's another one of our markets, right? Uh, you know, same thing. Like, we've got a great team in Jacksonville. They're just awesome. And um, uh, so, you know, I'd, I'd make the recommendation on the team more than I would on the market. Market's important, but the team is more important. I love that. I love that. All right. So do we have some of your in, uh, inflation information pulled up? One of the things I talk about a lot is inflation, okay? This is the uh, really the hidden wealth creator with our real estate investments. Um, and inflation uh, does something. It diminishes the value of our debt. Now, income property is the most debt-friendly asset class in the United States. In other words, it is an asset class where we can essentially do, and look, you were in private equity and accounting, so you know all about something called the LBO, right? The leveraged buyout, okay? And the LBO in the real estate world is basically what we're all doing as investors, okay? Here's the concept of a leveraged buyout. And I know everybody listening has heard about this on the news, right? You'll hear that some big publicly traded company is buying another company on an LBO. What are they doing? What do they mean when they say that? What they mean is this. They're using the assets of the company they're acquiring rather than their own assets, in order to finance the purchase. Those assets of the company being acquired are the collateral for the debt, which is really quite interesting. Because usually when you want to get a loan, you have to have your own collateral, okay, to get that loan. But with income property, we say to the lender, don't look to me for the collateral, look to the asset I'm acquiring. That's exactly what a leveraged buyout is. And if you should default on the loan, the only thing the lender can go to is the asset you acquired. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Okay. Income property has the leveraged buyout characteristic built in. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And maybe uh, some of your listeners have wondered, I know I certainly have, how sometimes you hear about this stuff on the news or read about it, and you think, how is it that this small company is buying this big company? Shouldn't that be the other way around? No, not with a leveraged buyout. 
Because with a leveraged buyout, the small company's assets aren't important. What's important are the assets of the big company that they're buying. Beautiful thing. So with income property, we can buy bigger assets than we have collateral for. That's an incredible, incredible feature, okay? So here's what happens. Now, um, one of the things we have to look at is history because I don't want any of your listeners to think that this is some kind of hypothetical pie-in-the-sky thing I'm about to share, okay? This really happened to tens of millions of people. So let's go back to 1972, one year after we went off the gold standard. And in 1972, a dollar was worth a dollar, and the median price house was worth $18,000. I'm going to round off for speed, about $18,000. And if you put 20% down, you'd get a mortgage for just over $14,000 on that house in 1972. The interest rate back then was 7.37%. Your monthly payment on that property was $101. Okay? Now, Fast forward 12 years to 1984, okay? That's a good year to pick because there's a famous book written about it by George Orwell, right? 1984. A dollar from 1972 when you got that mortgage and bought that house is now only worth 40 cents. The dollar lost 60 cents, meaning you still think you're paying $101 per month. In fact, every month, you're writing a check for $101, just like you were in 1972. But the value of that $101 now is only $41 per month. So you, you, inflation is now paying off your loan for you. It's paying off the balance of the loan, but it's also reducing the monthly payment on the loan. This is a beautiful hidden wealth creator that very few people understand. Most people think they get rich in real estate because the property goes up in value. But what's really happening to Ray is the debt is going down in value. Now, this only works if you finance the purchase. If you don't finance the purchase, this doesn't happen. Okay? So let's move on. Let's now go fast forward to the end of that mortgage. 30 years have gone by. It's now 2001. And that $1972 is now worth only 24 cents. Okay, 24 cents. Uh, the house is appreciated in value, but so what? Okay, the appreciation on the house is roughly about the rate of inflation. It's not a big deal. But what's really exciting is the debt depreciating in value because inflation is paying off our debt for us. So over the course of those 30 years, Remember, just to recap, we took out a mortgage for about $14,000. With interest at 7.37%, we paid back $36,000 in what's called nominal dollars. Now, the concept of nominal is really important to understand because if I held up $10 in front of the screen here and I said, DeRay, what is this called? What would you say? It's called $10, okay? It's called $10 in 2019, but what was it called in 1972? It was also called $10. That's the name of it, in name only. That's all nominal means, in name only. It doesn't indicate the value of it. Now, the value has declined since 1972 or, or whatever date in history. doesn't matter. I'm just picking that date. 
because that's the example we're using. Okay, so in nominal dollars on this mortgage, the tens of millions of people who did this exact thing, they repaid $36,000. But after inflation had its effect, they really only repaid $16,000 roughly, okay? Which means they thought they were paying 7.37%, but they were really only paying 1.06% after they were adjusted for inflation. Sounds pretty good, right? But it gets better. But wait, there's more, as they say in those late night infomercials, yeah, okay? Yeah. <laughs> but wait, there's more. This is where it gets really exciting. After tax benefits, they got paid to borrow the money. They had a negative interest rate of 1.16%. They actually got paid to borrow the money, okay? So this is why so many people got rich owning real estate. Okay, it's not because of the simple thing of, hey, it produces positive cash flow, or hey, I bought it for, you know, $18,000 and it went up to $30,000. You know, that's all great, but it's, it's child's play compared to what I call inflation induced debt destruction. That's the real wealth creator inflation induced debt destruction. Now, that's a mouthful. And it's kind of my trademark term, just call it IIDV, inflation-induced debt destruction. That's what makes us rich. I, I absolutely love that. Um, and I love how you were able to succinctly kind of walk us through that example. And you're, you're so right. I mean, we think about the power of real estate and we know about the cash flow. You know, we know about the, the even the debt pay down and we know about the appreciation. We know about the tax benefits. We know about you being a business owner. But oftentimes people forget about this, this, this hidden compartment. Right. And um, I love how you were able to kind of highlight that for us and just kind of wrapping up our conversation. This has been super powerful. Let's kind of wrap up this this market segment with maybe your biggest advice. Right. For investors who are just starting out and they're again, they're uh, they're in the market. They may be in a cyclical market. They may be in a stable market. Uh, in the linear market, and they're really trying to get their footing, and they feel as though, man, I, I can't, I don't know if I should invest in my backyard. What's your biggest advice for them? Right. Um, you know, my biggest advice is if you're in a cyclical market, if you live in one of those cyclical markets we outlined, you can't be an investor there. You can only be a speculator and a gambler. Um, and if you're already wealthy, that's great. Speculate and gamble a little bit with, you know, up to 20% of your, your wealth. But if you're starting out, just buy some little cheap houses and rent them out to people. It's really quite simple. Um, you know, the other thing I'd say, of course, is start your own business. Okay. But, um, you know, buy, buy, you know, start a side hustle. Uh, maybe the side hustle is real estate investing, but the simple proven path, the most historically proven asset class in the entire world is to just simply buy some little income properties and rent them out to people. Follow one path. Try not to get, um, you know, tempted by all the things out there. It's a big world. There's lots of temptation. Everybody's got a new idea, new flavor of the month. The thing that works, and you all know it because you all know probably many people that have become very wealthy with it, is to just buy some simple houses and rent them out. Lifestyle Design Acceleration Hacks. What is your favorite Before the Millions book? 
well, before the millions, see, now I've got the millions. And one that I read, um, uh, I guess, you know, kind of, well, it was after, maybe this was at the 2 million level, was uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. That's just a classic. It's a great book. Um, you know, I highly recommend that book. But before The Millions, um, I read Earl Nightingale's Greatest Discovery, and I'm not sure that book's even in print. I purchased it a few times over the years. It's not easy to get. It's out there, though. You can find it. It's awesome. And then another one is called Mission Success by Og Mandino. That's another great book. I read that one before I made my millions, and um, I'd highly recommend those two. They're, they're classics. I love it. I love it. I love it. Uh, what is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or tool. Um, you know, one hack that I really like is is just an app that I use a lot called Voxer, V-O-X-E-R. And okay. that's just a great voice messaging app. Um, and I find that that has made us a lot more efficient over the years. Um, Russell Brunson, the founder of ClickFunnels, got me into it. And um, uh, that's that's been a really good hack. But you know, there's another hack. Um, if you if you can afford it, join a mastermind group, a professional mastermind group. If you can't afford it, go to conferences or create your own mastermind group. Um, this hack you got to do, okay? It might be free, okay? It might not be free. It might be free, depending on how you approach it. But you got to get around people that are smarter than you, that are doing more than you, that are making more money than you. You want to be the poorest guy in the room, okay? You want to be the dumbest guy in the room, uh, if possible. Because when you're the smartest guy in the room, you're not going to learn much. When you're the richest guy in the room, you're not going to learn much, okay? Uh, and, you know, guy is interchangeable for gal. I don't mean to sound, you know, <laughs> gender bias here, okay? It's, it's just an expression. Um, but, uh, yeah, you, you got to get around people that are doing bigger things than you are. And uh, Jim Rohn, one of my first four mentors, he said, your income will be the average of the five people you spend most of your time with. And look, when I was, when I was poor, I didn't have access to rich people, okay? What I did, though, is I spent time, if you will, with people by listening to their audio cassettes and reading their books. And back then, they were audio cassettes. Now they're an MP3 file, but, uh, you know, you, you know, just get around those people. Maybe it's virtually, maybe you're not really going to know them in real life, but you can have virtual mentors by just, you know, listening to good podcasts and, um, finding those great mentors. Like I've talked about when it comes to boxer guys, what, what, what is it about boxer that, that attracts you to it? Is it making things more efficient? I use boxer as well with my clients. Yeah. Well, first off, yeah, good, good. Voice communication is a much better form of communication than email or text. I think in the last 25 years, communication has just gone down the tubes because people don't talk enough. We were built to talk. We were created to talk. Writing came much later. It has its place. There are only really two reasons to write things. Uh, to preserve things for the record or for, for posterity or for legal purposes, or to uh, to communicate highly technical things, okay? Otherwise, think about how much more data there is in a voice communication than uh, we've all misinterpreted things posted on social media uh, or in an email or text message. Friendships have ended over this thing, thing where I bet you if people were actually talking, that misinterpretation wouldn't have occurred uh, because there's just a lot more data in a voice communication, the tone, the pace, 
um, the you know small innuendo, right? That you just don't get from text. What do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? Um, well, you know, I know that anytime I can just quit, <laughs> you know, because I don't have to work. Uh, so, so that's great. But I have to tell you, you know, I'm not, um, you know, I had dinner with Tim Ferriss uh, about a year and a half ago in Austin, Texas. And it was literally a four hour dinner. I kid you not. It was a four hour dinner and a one hour dessert. Okay. So, you know, he wrote the four hour work week and the four hour body and the four hour chef. So the dinner was four hours. You know, it's just kind of funny that it worked out that way. But, you know, Tim Ferriss never really worked a four hour work week. Okay. That was a. It's, it's, it's marketing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's marketing. Okay. He, yeah. he tested that name and it was a good name that resonated. Okay. So Tim Ferriss works a lot. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I work a lot too. But, that's because I have a mission I want to do. I don't have to do it. Um, I just really am into this consumer advocacy uh, mission that I'm all about. And, uh, and so, so that's why I work. So, you know, I'm not going to tell you that I like, you know, don't work and, uh, you know, live the laptop lifestyle. I don't, I, I work pretty much every day. I mean, I do travel a lot and do stuff, but you know, I work, I work, you know, five days a week, like normal people. I don't have to do it, but you know, I, I've, I'm into a lot of stuff, you know, I want to do a lot of things. And so uh, business is kind of my hobby. Yeah, I love that. I love that. You know, um, one of my favorite quotes from Seth Golden was uh, one day he was, um, he was at a resort and a vacationer walked up to him and was like, uh, he was on his laptop, I believe he was working, right? And a vacationer walked up to him and was like, hey, Seth, why do you feel as though you need to work on vacation? And his response was, why do you feel as though you have a life that you need a vacation from? Uh -huh. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah. and it's, Hey, like we're doing exactly what we love to do. Like what we're doing right now, Jason, like I'm working right now. This is work and I, I'm having a blast. I love what I'm doing. And this goes back to just the lifestyle design theme and how we've been able to create that. And right. we're not doing this because we have to, we do this because we love it. And I think that's a major difference. Yeah. Um, yeah. What were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? Oh, I've made tons of sacrifices, uh, you know, uh, just, uh, stuff that I didn't get to do that, uh, you know, my friends are out doing that I'm not doing because, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working and they're not. <laughs> so, you know, uh, sometimes that's, that's, uh, there are lots of sacrifices, you know, you, you have, uh, things that you worry about and, um, problems that occur and, uh, people that just kind of sometimes go south on you and kind of go a little nuts really that you deal with and people rip you off and, um, you know, sometimes you got to sue them. And I, you know, I think that's, that's part of the price of admission. I mean, you have to hold people accountable. There are bad people out there. And, you know, uh, the, the, um, you know, uh, there, there's this quote that says, um, something that uh, all, all that's necessary for evil to flourish is for good people to do nothing. Right. And you have a duty to hold people accountable for their actions. If, if you, if you get in business with a crook and you don't hold them accountable, they're just going to go cheat the next person. Okay. So that that's charity work. Okay. Holding crooks accountable and exposing them is charity work and you got to do it, you know? Um, and maybe you can't do it because you're at the position in life where, you know, you haven't achieved success and you don't have the money to do that or the resources uh, and, and you can't. But if you have achieved that success and you have those resources, you got to use them. You have a duty to the world, uh, to, to society to do it.
Yeah, you gave you gave, you just gave me a personal nugget, and I never thought of it like that. Um, you know, I've I've been in business with people who haven't been reputable or unethical, and you know, sometimes I just let it go by the wayside. I'm like, I'm not, it's not my responsibility to to you know to to patrol or monitor these people. I just have to move on and find people I want to work with. But you just kind of flip that paradigm for me to where it's like, no, like you want to, it's your civic duty and service to make sure that these people don't you know, continuing down this path and, you know, and, 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 and cause unfortunate situations for other people. So I love that. Um, who do you, uh, who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? Uh, well, those four mentors I talked about, I'd say would be the big ones. And, you know, you might add the fifth one, which was Augmandino. Gotcha. I love it. I love it. Last but not least, why do you think so many of us are stuck? before the millions, even though we have every intention of getting to the millions? You know, I think a lot of people just uh, have a worldview that doesn't let them see this stuff. The only place they see success is maybe on television, um, but they need to actually see it in real life. And they need, it's important if, if at all possible to get around people that are doing more than you. You know, I remember years ago when I joined Young Entrepreneurs Organization and, you know, I thought I had a, good growing business and I was doing pretty well. But then I walk into this meeting and there's these kids that are, you know, my age that are doing much bigger things than I'm doing. And then it became like something I could perceive. And I, I don't know how to say this right, but, you know, I kind of thought, well, this is just a regular person, but yet he or she are, are very successful. And I'm not that successful. I'm just a regular person. They're nothing special. They're just a person, you know, that does a few things a little differently than I do. Maybe they just have bigger thinking. And, um, you know, when you realize that, that's pretty powerful. And, um, you know, you can do that through a mastermind group. You could meet people at conferences, through connections, networking, family, whatever. But you've got to get around some people that are more successful than you are. I love it. Jason, this has been amazing. Again, Jason, thank you for your duty, for, for getting on the microphone and literally inspiring hundreds, if not thousands, or hundreds of thousands of people at this point to push them towards financial freedom. Uh, we appreciate what you do, and we'll talk to you very soon. My pleasure, DeRay. Thanks for, uh, to you, and happy investing to you and your listeners. 